Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? James, hi. I am extremely good. It's spring here. It's beautiful out, and we get this amazing opportunity to speak with Lucy Brown today about love, so I'm really excited. Yeah, so today our guest is Dr. Lucy Brown. Lucy is a neuroscientist and clinical professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine in New York. She is the co-founder of The Anatomy of Love, and someone who is a leading expert on the overlap of love, neuroscience, and meditation. It is a huge privilege to have her on today. Dr. Brown, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, and it's a huge privilege for me to talk to you. So I want to kick off by quoting you, because you said, and I'm quoting, the magic of love seems to me to be the best natural euphoria there is. (laughs) And I'm interested in what you actually mean when you talk about romantic love. Oh, well, one of the things I try to do is give it a real behavioral definition. So one person is totally obsessed with another. And if you're lucky, you're both totally obsessed with each other. But by that, I mean, you know, we have one of the questions we asked our participants in our experiments was, what percentage of the day do you think of this of the other person? You know, and if they said about, you know, 40% of the time, we said, hmm. But if they said 80% of the time, we said, oh, probably. And if they said, are you kidding? I can't stop thinking about the other person. I can't sleep because I'm thinking about you. <laughs> so romantic love, that early stage, is an obsession with another person. And sometimes um, just in the very beginning, you can feel your heart rate go up a little bit when, when you see them or you think you're going to see them. Your palms can get sweaty. And you just, there's what we call, I like this phrase, intrusive thinking. You're just constantly thinking about the other person. You, You have a hard time paying attention to anything else at work. You plan your day around maybe meeting up with that other person. And it's the desire for emotional union with another person. That's an important part of it. It's not just sex. You know, sex is part of it, sure. But much more important is this emotional union uh, feeling that you really are, you know, want to become part of the other person. It's amazing what you say there, because there's sort of two parts. The first part sounded a bit scary, you know, when you say it out loud like that. It sounds like an addiction. I mean, Uh it has the same qualities, you know, where you're strategizing on how to get it. You wake up thinking about it. You fall asleep thinking about it. And it takes up a lot of your cognitive bandwidth. So the first little bit, I was like, oh, you're right. I mean, I've definitely had this feeling. But when we lay it out like that, it's like, oh, (laughs) oh, wow, that's very close to what we think about sort of addictive substances. But the second part about this drive for union sounds a lot more wholesome than maybe the reason why we pursue addictive substances. Ah, but let's go to that for a moment. Indeed, 
one of the conclusions that we've come to after um, these years of these studies and looking at the brain systems underlying romantic love is that romantic love is a one of the original natural addictions. Right. Okay? And the right. way I think about love now is that we are addicted to each other. Um, uh, and that we really need to be in the same way that you, you know, you can't just take water or leave it, right? You need to need water. You need to need food. And we need to need each other. These are our natural built-in addictions that we got, you know, through evolution, if you, however you want to think about it, or, you know, nature gave us these natural addictions. We got these drugs of abuse and the way I see it and from the brain data, the drugs of abuse jump onto these natural addiction systems and they drive them very hard. And that's that's what drug abuse is all about, driving right. those systems. Right. So hijacking these evolutionarily ancient systems that are in part, I mean, in terms of love, and I'd like to talk about this more, that are built to make us stick to each other quick and to grow deep, profound relationships with other tribe members and other humans, drugs of addiction are just sort of, they're just sitting on top or hijacking sort of parasitically on these ancient systems that maybe were meant to stick us together in part. Exactly. Well said. I like the way yeah. you said that. Yeah. So is there an evolutionary psychology benefit to this feeling of love, honeymoon period feeling? Great question. So some people would say that it keeps us together just as long as it takes to bring up a child so that it can walk at least or, or that so that other people can take care of it. It's best to have two people, you know, taking care of one child immediately after birth and certainly within the first few months. And so you want to be very close then and both have this drive to take care of your offspring. And remember, you know, evolution and survival depends upon sex and reproduction. So some people would say that what romantic love did, it's a, romantic love is a developed form of a mammalian drive to pursue preferred mates. Think about that, I'll just say it again, that romantic love is a developed form of a mammalian drive. So this is, we're not just talking about humans here. Yeah. It's mammalian through evolution. This de It's developed to pursue preferred mates. So it's sticking with a preferred mate for a while, not just, you know, time for sex, but for a while, long enough to get your offspring at least able to be taken care of by others. Yeah, that's really different than the way we think about long-lasting love today, because I hear what you mean. You have this sharp, hot, fast stickiness that makes sure that you're picking a good mate and you're able to have a child and you stick together long enough to rear the child. But we tend to want to, it seems in our culture, to like find a partner and to cultivate a more long-lasting love. So I see what you mean by it's built on top, but is it categorically different or maybe it uses the same circuitry but then expands Oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. So, indeed, there's this early stage intense romantic love in which you're totally obsessed with the other person. For some people, it can, it can last a lot longer, but usually it's about a year, maybe two years. And then what develops is more what we call, you know, in the trade, attachment. Okay? Mm. Hair bonding. So... 
Early stage romantic love involves more parts of the brain that are also controlling reflexes like swallowing and even breathing. It's the drive system and the reflex system at a very basic level. But attachment, that second stage, when you're not so obsessed, you can go to work and think about other things, right? What you might think about is what you're going to bring home for dinner, but you can concentrate on other things. You can can function again like a normal human. (laughs) But you're certainly still in love and attached and and addicted to the other person, you know, in, in a different way. But this involves brain systems that are higher up in the brain, that get a little bit more cognitive information, shall we say. So yes, it's a different system, but again, it's a mammalian system. It's a system we inherited from mammals that came before us. And so this sticking together, it's equally rewarding if some people think it's even better, that warm feeling of, you know, affection and cuddling and that kind of of thing. It bears worth repeating, in the sharp early phases, the parts of the brain that are governing love are the same parts of the brain that are governing breathing and reflexes. Yeah, and swallowing, thirst, hunger, right? And we talk like that. Those are a little bit the metaphors we use for that pungent love. Like I'm thinking Rumi and Hafiz. I mean, when they're talking about love and they're talking about love of God actually there, They use a lot of terminology about, you know, you're like the food I eat, or you're like the very breath in my lungs. I mean, you know, I almost can't breathe when I'm around you. Like, no wonder we use those. I mean, they might not be metaphorical, actually. Maybe they are, you know, we're tapping into a little bit what's happening in the neurophysiology. Exactly. Wow. And then it turns out that later in love, later in the relationship, it's a slightly different part of the brain that's being used. I think even that is worth just stopping and talking about. I don't think we have this conception, popularly, of love being something that's got a number of stages and that's reflected in the brain. It feels like, well, you're in love a lot at the start, and then you get maybe less in love. Yeah, Yeah, it becomes a degraded, worse kind of love. Exactly that. But when you frame it in the way that you framed it, it reveals that not to be the correct assessment. Instead, what you do is you graduate from one kind of love governed by X part of the brain to a slightly different kind of love governed by the Y part. And I just want to ask you, I don't know whether this is a question with a direct answer, but you mentioned that potentially the evolutionary benefit of the sharpness initially is you need people to be together long enough to raise a kid, have a kid, raise a kid long enough that they can be looked after elsewhere. Is the idea that after you move out of that sharpness and into attachment, the child has already grown up? Is that the idea? No. So it's a different stage. So you've gotten beyond the absolute survival. But then what you need is you need protection. You need protection for yourselves. The couple needs to protect each other, support each other, even if they don't have children. Okay. And you need to get that child going so that it can reproduce too. You need to keep things going. That's the advantage of the pair bonding. Now, many other species survive without this, with just getting other beings out there. 
But for humans, probably one of the reasons for our great evolutionary success is that we have so many different strategies for thriving and thus for reproducing. But this part, this second part, that's attachment and the pair bonding is in many ways equally important. What it does is it assures the growth of a family, the growth and then the growth of community. And it assures support from many sources. And we really do need each other, as we maybe see so well right now. Yeah. We need these systems to attach to others, and maybe not so obsessively, really, so that we can be a little more rational about it. But it's equally important to our survival to have someone else to protect and protect us. And that explains why you've said that love is in some ways a survival system. Right, for both stages. I see it now totally as a survival system. Yeah. Right. But a lot of your work, some of the things I've read you writing online and some of your discussions are also around contemplative training and meditation. And so where does this idea of love as a survival system meet maybe love as a spiritual factor as well, or as something that's part of our self-actualization? Oh, so, maybe that's a big topic. What do you think? Oh, I think that's a very big topic. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, people are figuring it out, and I probably have an unusual viewpoint around Great. this. Because... I was surprised when, you know, one of the people who's taught us so much about meditation is John Kabat-Zinn. And when I heard him say that he has had a love affair with meditation, Mm. I wasn't sure what he meant by that. But when I hear someone say I've had a love affair with you know, something, it means, boy, yeah, he's he's obsessed with this and certainly dedicated in a way that, that he would equate meditation with a love affair right. where, again, you're, you're not thinking about too much else. So I think what happens at first from the, from the data I've looked at that's out there, mm. that's been published in the Neuroscience of Meditation, there are people who find an immediate activation of the same reward system, or, or at least it's a very similar part of the reward system to romantic love when they begin. And what I think of from my own experience totally at this point and from and from what I've read is one of the things that meditation can do for many people is make them feel a whole lot better because it reduces anxiety. And what is a great anxiety reducer? Breathing. You know, breathing deeply, slowly. And this is a big part of the first thing you do when you're taught about meditation concentrating on the breath and it's a kind of distraction to you know you're not thinking about your problems and it feels good not for everybody but it has a really good feeling and then what i've seen so in in studies that have compared people who have just are just learning to meditate versus those who are long-term meditators you know for years have been doing it for a long time the fascinating thing is that the brain changes for them move up to that same attachment system that we see in you know people when we're talking about a romantic relationship and when we're talking about married people okay 
So indeed, I think meditation engages these same systems, probably through the breath and through stress reduction. And interestingly, you know, through the sense of self too. So this mm. is another complicated topic and something that's so fascinating about meditation. You're supposed to lose as much as you can your sense of self or not think about self so much. And you're supposed to not care so much about yourself. Yeah, decenter yourself, reduce your selfishness by including more in your empathic circle than just sort of yourself. And think what happens when you're in love. Right. Absolutely. People say they would die for the person they're in love with in the early stage of love. They are ready to give up themselves. Again, we see deactivations in the brain in areas that have to do with sense of self, people who are in love and people who are meditating. It's really interesting. So just to clarify, just so I've heard that right, people who take up meditation for the first time have the type of brain responses that people falling in love might have. But then the yogis who are 25 years in the game, their brains, if I heard you correctly, reflect more like the long-term kinds of attachments that, say, married people might have. Right. That's a fascinating parallel. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's no reason, right? Like, there's no inherent obvious reason why that should be the case. Well, so actually, the- you know, let me, just, let me just say one thing quick there. You know, what comes to my mind right away, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but my intuition sort of goes this way. If love is one of the ways that we reduce uncertainty in our environments by getting together with other people, then it's about security and it's about safety and it's about getting a good fit with the world. And one of the ways we do that is by socially bonding. That's for sure the case. But what you find in meditation is another avenue to feeling safe, to feeling connected, to reducing the kind of uncertainty in your environment by reflecting on what it's like to be uncomfortable. What is pain? What is suffering? And coming into a better relationship with that. I completely understand why you might have the same reaction to getting a good grip on your environment that way, or getting together with a bunch of other humans that help you get a good grip on the world in that way. That seems, actually, that seems really intuitive to me that those might be the same. Nice, Mark. Nice. Yeah, yeah you're saying that they're both methods of reducing uncertainty. Yeah, they're both methods of feeling at home in the world where you're in a dangerous place, isn't it? So, I guess, I mean, Lucy, you've said that another kind of euphoria comes when people are experiencing long-term attachment. They are deeply satisfied in a calm way. And that deep satisfaction in a calm way might sound familiar to anyone who's sharing the benefits of a 35-year-old marriage. Yeah, exactly. So what do you perceive, if any, the spiritual significance of love to be? I know Mark's asked that already in one kind of way, but I'm interested in whether you perceive the the act of romantic love to hold any particular place in the frameworks that govern spirituality. I know it sounds a little bit woo, but where do you see love as being fitting in the wider system of the self and spirituality? I mean, my first answer is, but of course. And it somewhat depends upon what you mean by spirituality, because some people mean a very deep feeling of losing themselves and having the feeling of being at one with the universe, shall we say, and really losing themselves completely. So all I can say is, first of all, one thing that 
that certainly happens when you're in love too. So, so we have systems in place for that, that were probably more important for our evolution than being able to sit and meditate. <laughs> these systems underlie these abilities to feel this deep sense of spirituality. Yeah. I'm interested in love addiction and what happens to the brain during love addiction and why eventually some people are more susceptible, it seems, to love addiction than others. So let's be clear. So by love addiction, you mean people who just want to fall in love again and again and again? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think I mean that as opposed to someone who is madly in love with one person. So here's a, a fascinating aspect too of all of this, which is individual differences. And so the need for another person in a, what I'll say is, you know, perhaps an unhealthy way, because actually when you're very clingy and you just need this affection so very, very much, that doesn't make for a healthy relationship. You, you need to be able to leave the relationship and do other things and then come back. It's like dancers, you know, dancing. It's not just addicted to love. It's part of an attachment style. And, you know, psychologists know about this. And yes, some people have that greater need than others. And there are things that they can do about it. So know thyself. Know what part of the spectrum you are on in terms of attachment style. And then know thy partner and who they are, you know, personality-wise. And there's so much that can be done for romantic relationships now. You know, there's all kinds of things that really do help and work. One of them is when people, they're disappointed because they feel that romantic love go down and they liked feeling that romantic love so much. So you can do something that's novel with your partner. That's the kind of thing that's recommended. Go, you know, go on a walking tour of Italy or something, you know. I've actually heard that you find your partner more attractive if you do dangerous things with each other. And part of the reason why is because if you do a little bit risky something, then the evolutionary stuff turns back on and you get sticky again because you need somebody to help you manage the little bit scary space. So a good first date is to go on a high bridge, you know, to go on a ghost tour in your town or something. But you can also just go to a movie and experience another life that way. You can experience adventure together in a movie too. I love this. Can I push you just one more time? I sure. love this, like thinking about the way that you can convert your research into real practical advice. So we've got this idea that love helps us create rich relationships and so much so that we might even lose ourselves in that. I think that's probably the most valuable thing we've, we've sort of brought up today in terms of practice to really have your selfishness come down by including somebody else into your empathic ring. Have you learned anything else from your research that can facilitate or help people better understand how that works? Or what have you learned about knowing the brain that might help us do that better, especially in that sort of expansion and loss of selfishness sort of way? Oh, so there are a couple of things, but they all come down to, more than a couple of things, but they all come down to activating this reward system. You right. want to be sure that you are activating your own reward system 
as well as someone else's. You want to be, you know, there's this guy who's a relationship expert. One of his tricks is we all as couples will maybe criticize one another at one time, you know, after a few years. (laughs) So if you criticize the other person once, that means during that day, you have to use five positive statements about it. I completely hear that. I'm like a big golden retriever in my relationship. I need to feel like the game is working a lot more than it's not working. We have a theory out now about some of the harmful impacts of zero-sum mentality, Mm. where you think what matters is me getting, and even at the expense of you, what matters is me getting. And it turns out that that's not a very good foundation for well-being over the long term because it poisons these social dynamics and it, it pulls you away from this social exaggeration or amplification that's making you feel safe so then you feel less safe so then you feel more like you need more which makes you less safe and actually you want to reverse that by i just heard it when you said not only my reward system but i want to be rewarded by your reward system going off and you should be rewarded when my reward system goes off so we should be sort of joyful at each other's reward system activations as well maybe Exactly. As much as possible. And there are so many different ways to do this. What they're all based on is activating this reward system and expanding your own sense of self. That's another thing. You know, taking courses on your own or together. Together Mm. is better. But if you learn something new, you can expand your sense of self too. Quite often the language people use around breakups heartbreak, withdrawal symptoms. You even occasionally get died from a heartbreak, right? And I wanted to ask you about the neuroscience of withdrawals, heartbreak, and particularly whether it mapped onto drug withdrawal experiences. Ah, great question. And absolutely, it does. So the way we did our experiments was we had people looking at a picture of the person. There is uh, activation of this reward system again when the person is looking at the picture of their beloved. And it's more than in the early stage. It's more parts of the brain and it, it does include parts of the brain that were active when cocaine addicts were studied, when they were craving cocaine. Also, there's a part of the brain where We don't just feel pain, we feel the distress of pain. Some people describe when they're given pain medications, after they've broken a bone or something like that, that they still feel the pain, but it doesn't bother them. So that's a particular part of the brain that's involved in in that, in the distress of pain. And so that area was activated too for the people we studied. One of the positive things about it was that I, I wouldn't have you know, necessarily predicted this, but that we saw is that people, people are working on kind of reevaluating the situation, though. There are parts of the brain that we know that are do work on reassessing negative situations. And those parts of the brain were active too, for the people who were heartbroken and looking at the face of their, you know, their former partner, which is certainly a very painful thing to be doing. Right. So you have this pain inviting them to reframe, to reorient, to reinterpret how their life works. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That must be what grief is all about. You lose one way of being in the world 
and of course your partner that you lose represents a lot of future things, don't they? And then you have to learn how to reframe your life to make sense again. So it's as 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 we were talking about, it's your sense of self. It's not yeah, just right. your way of life. It's your whole sense of self that you've lost. So it's a big loss. Uh, heartbreak is is not just you know the way we generally think about it. Yeah, People feeling I, it's not just some feeling in your chest. All right, it's it's a you are losing yourself. And not in the good way like we meant in meditation where you're losing yourself, but you really feel like you're losing your your safety here in the world right. of being exactly. Yeah. It's also interesting that in the case of how we typically think about breakups and heartbreak, yeah, we it becomes the other person centric. So they're upset because they're not with person X anymore. But that's actually not true. You're upset because, as you say, you've lost your sense of safety, direction. Person X is kind of a means to those things, which you're really mourning. Oh, nice. And in that way, it makes sense, you know. Because when I hear drug withdrawal, same parts of the brain active, I go, Jesus, that's extreme. But it makes sense that it's extreme. Because you're not missing person X, you're missing a sense of safety and direction and security. Beautiful. And and that means, you know, and it's it's you and you can do something about it. One of the things that I notice just as I get older is I'm getting better at this thing of falling in love and falling out of love or being together and being apart and all the little small ways and the big ways that it happens. And it seems to me like there's another similarity here with meditation, which is um, one of the benefits for meditation in my life has been to be able to watch when I have a critical arousal experience, when I feel like I'm in danger or I have critical worry or critical fear. Those are really valuable times too, because you learn what it's like to have your nervous system go outside of its window of tolerance. And you learn that, yes, it doesn't feel good for a couple of weeks or for a month if it's a big thing. But, but for the most part, the nervous system re-regulates itself. The nervous system, for the most part, is, is quite resilient. At least my nervous system is quite resilient. And learning that these natural big breaks have an arc. I mean, the first time that happens when we're 16, I think we just think, well, that's it. That's it. Like, I'm never going to feel good again, ever. That was it. I remember thinking that when I was 16. And now at 42, I would like to think some of my wisdom is turning on. And this does feel like it's uh, related to meditation. I've had enough of those arcs now that when I feel one coming on, a little part of the background is going, yeah, this hurts. But uh, we know how this arc goes. Reach out to friends, hold on tight, eat ice cream and give it two weeks and then reassess. And that's a big difference. Oh yeah, Mark, I totally agree. Yeah, that's, and that's great. And for people to hear that, you know, that that's, that's the way it can go. That's just wonderful. So is there any reason why people who never fall in love don't? Is there a reason, at least on the level of the brain, as to why some people who don't fall in love don't? So, yeah, I wish I could answer that and the level of the brain. My guess is a lot of it is genetic and then that interacts with, you know, difficult first relationships. That that can then interact with the, your genes that are tending to keep you a little bit distant. For those who never fall in love, whether it's for their own protection, what the human race has survived well with is uh, variety. Yeah. Variety. Yeah, I love that. 
So to have some people around who just are not going to succumb <laughs> in any way, too much attachment, maybe that's a good thing. And certainly for them, it's whatever, it's part of their human experience. Yeah, it's worth saying there is some substitute here, right? I mean, the substitute for having the deep attachment is not having the deep attachment, <laughs> which also comes with a set of advantages and experiences that you certainly don't get. Not you know, I mean, if you... coaster of high attachment, no attachment, high attachment, no attachment. Yeah, exactly. Which is why it's actually important to say at the while it is wonderful to sort of dance the dance of falling in love, falling out of love, long term attachment. It comes, as anyone knows who's done it, it comes with some significant disadvantages. <laughs> and the alternative isn't worth dismissing. <laughs> Lucy, just before we finish up, where can everybody find you? Oh, so thanks very much for asking, because we've worked hard on this website that's called www.theanatomyoflove.com. And there's a lot of information there, so much, it might even be a little hard to get through, but we've tried to make it as accessible as possible to non-scientists. So we talk about love, attachment, heartbreak, but also personality and how people can do their best in finding a compatible partner. Because we're all for that too. If you're going to look for a partner, try to find somebody compatible and who you're going to have a healthy relationship with. Mm. That's a great place, I think, for education about oneself and about love and what we know in terms of science of love these days. Yeah, excellent. Dr. Lucy Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Oh, Jamie and Mark, thank you so much for this conversation. You really, it was a lot of fun. And I, I love so much of what you two said. It's really, really great to talk to you. Wonderful. That was the Contemplative Science Podcast. And as always, we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 